today on Against the Grain, what happens to people's ability to care for others under neoliberalism? According to Sarah Clark Miller, caregivers experience moral precarity and suffer moral injury. I'm CS. The Penn State professor considers the ethical dimensions of life under neoliberal capitalism coming right up. And this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Analyses of neoliberalism tend to focus on its political and economic aspects and effects. But what about the ethical and moral realms? What impact do neoliberal policies and institutions have on us as moral beings, as people trying to act ethically in relation to others? According to Sarah Clark Miller, the activity of caring for others is compromised under neoliberalism. One consequence is what she calls moral precarity and moral injury, brought on by the fact that we can't care for loved ones in ways that are consistent with our ethical principles. Sarah Clark Miller is Associate Professor of Philosophy, Bioethics, and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at the Pennsylvania State University and author of The Ethics of Need, an essay she wrote called Neoliberalism, Moral Precarity, and the Crisis of Care Caught My Eye. It appears in the volume Care Ethics in the Age of Precarity. When Sarah and I connected recently, I began by asking her to define neoliberalism. So I'll start by saying that, generally speaking, with neoliberalism, there's a focus on the importance of competitive markets, right? And so this means that the significance of competitive markets will seep into and be dominant in multiple areas of life. So this might mean the economic, the social, and the political. And with that, we also see an expansion of a sense of personal responsibility. Since I'm an ethicist, the personal responsibility piece of this puzzle is particularly important to me. So there's been a ton written on neoliberalism from political angles or economic angles and in terms of social analysis. Part of what I'm interested in is understanding neoliberalism specifically as an ethical phenomenon. And this means we need to pay attention to how these competitive markets imprint certain values upon us and how they really shape ethical life. And part of what this will do, especially when we're thinking about the concept of care, is expand the notion of personal responsibility such that people feel that they are responsible for more than they actually are. Right. This idea that people think that something bad that happens or maybe their perceived failings is is their own fault as opposed to the fault of of some sort of structure or system outside of themselves. So I think that's exactly right. And so one of the weird tricks of neoliberalism is that it shapes people's views of how they are as ethical agents in the world, as ethical people moving through their lives in a way that foregrounds their responsibility for what happens and hides or kind of occludes the systems and structures that really, quite frankly, stack the deck against their well-being. Your analysis is informed by care ethics, and I know we could speak for a long time about care ethics and what it is, but can you give us a, a basic definition of care ethics and what its focus is? So care ethics is a relatively new form of ethics. If you look at the history of moral philosophy, It arose in the 1970s and 80s, and it's a form of ethics that prioritizes the needs that people experience and also equally prioritizes the importance of caring and attending to those needs. Other key concepts in the the kind of backdrop of care ethics will be notions of human vulnerability, ways in which we are susceptible to harm, and forms of dependency, so ways in which we need to rely upon others to have our needs met. 
So those are some of the key issues that care ethics addresses in a moral domain. There's also then a social political understanding of care ethics that really does focus on caregiver relationships and what we might call dependency labor. For example, between caregivers and children, uh, adult children caring for their elderly parents, whatever the scenario might be within their own lives. And under care ethics, that is understood as a form of labor within the private domain or the home. Nancy Fraser has written about the crisis of care in contemporary capitalism. What mechanisms arise under capitalism, under neoliberal capitalism, that affect people's ability to care for each other? So according to Nancy Fraser, there are multiple mechanisms that give rise to the crisis of care. We can think first about women who traditionally perform most unpaid dependency labor in the home, how they are called to enter the paid workforce outside of the home. Now, this move then in generating the crisis of care isn't met with any kind of increased support for the realities of caregiving within the home, as would actually make sense. Instead, what happens in the moment that women enter the workforce is these government and perhaps even corporate structures that might have supported caregiving weaken. There's a weakening in social welfare programs. This means that there's a transfer of responsibility for caregiving into the home at the exact moment where women, the traditional caregivers, are leaving the home for the workplace. So this results in a, a skyrocketing demand for dependency labor uh, to be carried out by families instead of by the state, for example, just as families are less able to complete such work. So they're unable to take on necessary care work in full themselves. And when that happens, there are at least two results. Families that have the fiscal means will hire people, will pay others to perform dependency labor within their homes. Or if they're unable to hire dependency labor, then they really experience the true crux of the crisis of care, where they're squeezed between demands in the workplace um, and demands within the home for dependency labor. And you write that there are a number of solutions that have been proposed to this crisis of care that should be avoided because they are morally dubious. What are some of these, quote, solutions? So the solutions which I think should be avoided and many other care ethicists agree. So a viable solution to the crisis of care can't be to call for women to return to the home. The solution can't be that we ask women to return to performing dependency labor within the home as their primary focus. So that's not going to work. In addition, and this is equally important, the most advantageous or even the most morally acceptable option absolutely cannot be to offload care labor onto women of color and migrant workers, which would cement uh, racial hierarchies that already exist. So in scenarios where the crisis of care arises and families are able to afford to purchase care, right, to bring into the home, the dynamic is such that often that care labor is performed by women of color. And that care labor is performed in ways that are not properly remunerated or paid. That also cannot be an appropriate solution to the crisis of care. What do you think of analyses that stress work-life balance, right? That if only we could get kind of the right equilibrium, the right balance between our work lives and our non-work lives, that everything should be fine. We should be able to take care of all the things we need to take care of, including loved ones. So I think that the claim that work-life balance is a possibility really furthers the grip, the negative grip of personal responsibility under neoliberalism. So with work-life balance, the assumption going into any discussion of work-life balance is that it's an individual who is trying to figure out how to balance work on the one hand with life external to work on the other. What that does occlude is an a series of mechanisms, structural mechanisms, that make that very balancing 
the responsibility of the individual in the first place. So I think work-life balance is a fiction, and I think it's a pernicious fiction that helps to keep neoliberalism in place by making the problem a problem for individual women in, in any given scenario. The word, the concept, the reality, I guess, of precarity is often associated with neoliberalism. What is precarity? One way to understand precarity and one way to ground it in the philosophical literature is to think about what Judith Butler says about precarity. So she is one of the foremost scholars on the concept of precarity. And so for Butler, precarity is a condition that is created politically. And it results when there are certain populations who suffer from situations, uh, social and economic situations that are failing. So those who are particularly precarious experience kind of a, a heightened sense of vulnerability to potentially forms of violence, to forms of injury. And what I think is interesting is, you know, within our current democratic political systems, the threat of such failures places many populations in kind of this grip of risk. And it places certain populations in the presence of this unending kind of threat of injury upon injury. Now, what's important to recognize is that precarity, although it can um, affect anyone, tends to affect those who are socially oppressed much more than those who are socially secure. And so precarity itself is differentially distributed across social populations. Sarah Clark Miller is her name. She's Associate Professor of Philosophy, Bioethics, and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at the Pennsylvania State University. We are talking about her essay, Neoliberalism, Moral Precarity, and the Crisis of Care, which appears in the volume Care Ethics in the Age of Precarity. I'm C.S. Song, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. There is a type of precarity that you focus on in this piece, and it's in the title of your piece. It's moral precarity. And I guess maybe one way to get into what moral precarity is, the moral precarity brought on by neoliberalism, is to examine the concept of moral injury, because you write that the moral precarity that caregivers encounter under neoliberalism can in part be characterized through this concept of moral injury. Neoliberalism exposes caregivers to moral injury, I think is your argument. What is moral injury? So moral injury is a concept that originally arises in um, literature on healthcare workers and also literature concerning combat veterans. I'll take the healthcare workers example to explain what moral injury is. So for example, if you exist in circumstances of limited medical resources, and those resources can be limited equipment, limited medicines, limited time. When you exist in those circumstances as a doctor or a nurse, as a healthcare provider, you may in fact not be able to uphold these ingrained moral principles that form the bedrock of what it means to you to be a doctor or a nurse. So take, for example, the moral principle of beneficence, right? With beneficence, as a doctor or a nurse, you understand one of your primary goals to be to help patients. You want to cure them, or you want to at least prevent and limit harm to those patients. With moral injury, there's a dilemma that arises where you know what you should be doing, but for reasons that have to do with limited resources, you're unable to provide the form of care that you would wish. So the problem for moral injury is not a lack of knowledge. You have that knowledge. It's really in the face of the knowledge being unable to carry out your, your most important task, in a sense, that gives rise to the sense of moral injury. I'll add that moral injury is something that we have seen time and again when hospitals have been overwhelmed uh, during the pandemic in the face of COVID-19, where there has been such a press of patients coming into ERs, coming into the hospital, um, into the ICUs, 
that doctors and nurses and other healthcare providers have been unable to care for them the way they would want. When this happens over and over again, it results in a, a kind of crisis of a violation of your deepest and most importantly held moral principles, um, which can create incredible forms of moral friction and frankly, moral pain for, for healthcare providers. Yeah, one might think that a healthcare, a professional healthcare provider, if they are constrained by uh, circumstances beyond their control in relation to resources or time or other factors, that they might just say, well, you know, I'll do the best I can. I mean, I'll do the best I can with uh, what I've got. And I'm sure that that's a big part of it. But you're suggesting that there is a, a psychological, ethical consequence of this person not being able to fulfill their duties as they they are duty bound to, to do because of you know the Hippocratic oath or, or something else. Is that right? That's right. So nurses and doctors will be bound by the Hippocratic oath and they'll see that there is in fact an ethically correct course of action. They know what they're supposed to do. And frankly, if we think about the pandemic again in the circumstances of healthcare during the surges of COVID-19, most of the people who have remained in the healthcare professions are deeply, deeply dedicated to providing care to duties of beneficence. So they see that there is an ethically correct course of action, but there, there will be a series of obstacles that prevents them from taking that course. And those obstacles are not their fault, right? It's often a, a circumstantial, it's, it's systemic. If that happens once or twice, it's possible that they would have the type of response that you're suggesting, namely to say, well, I'm doing the best I can. But when you step into an ER, when you step into an ICU day after day, and you lose patients, and you're unable to care for them well, over and over again, this can create a sense of moral injury where you have previously understood yourself to be someone who is deeply caring in ways that uh, the Hippocratic Oath would suggest, and you repeatedly are unable to carry that out, which does in fact give rise to various forms of moral distress in healthcare providers. What's the causal connection in your mind between neoliberal policies and institutions on the one hand and the lack of resources or the constraints under which healthcare providers are forced to operate? So I think this is a really important question and one that is rather difficult to answer. So I will, I will give a start to an answer for this one. So I think that neoliberalism will create circumstances in healthcare that focus on profit, generally speaking. And when you are focused on profit, there are patterns of caregiving within the health professions that are not possible. So, and this broadens the answer a bit, but take, for example, the limited amount of time that various doctors are permitted to spend with their patients. You have 10 to 15 minutes and you move through patient after patient after patient. Part of how this reduces your ability to give good care is that a huge part of being a good doctor comes in the form of connecting well with your patients, right? And developing a relationship with them such that they'll trust the medical advice you're providing to them. It takes time to sit with them and sort through the sources of various health maladies they might be experiencing. If you are on the clock, you know, in the face of a profit that's demanded and you must move through X number of patients a day, your ability to establish meaningful relationships and provide good healthcare via those meaningful relationships will be severely, severely constrained. So that's one example of how neoliberalism and for-profit healthcare, or healthcare that at least is focused in part on generating profit, can really denigrate the, the healthcare professions and limit the forms of care that can be provided. We've been talking about moral injury sustained by healthcare providers, by medical personnel. What about within the home? People who are caregiving, they're taking care of loved ones, like, for example, children and elderly or sick relatives. Can they, do they also suffer moral injury? Yes. And so one of the points that I'm arguing for is the extension of this concept of moral injury 
which again originates in healthcare literature and in literature on combat veterans, to use it as a lens to consider what happens for caregivers in the presence of the crisis of care under neoliberalism. So we can think here about the everyday experiences of those attempting to engage in caregiving practices as they exist in the midst of free market capitalism. The important point here is that neoliberalism, really, it makes caring for those we love very, very difficult. And so there are impossible choices that will arise. I think one good way to drive home this point is to think about the daily existence or experience of a caregiver within neoliberal contexts. And it's really the experience of pressure. There is a sense that you're pressed for time. You, know, you squeeze in the chores at home before you go to work. You complete work of importance late at night while those you have cared for are asleep. And ultimately, there's this sense that you can be squeezed between caregiving duties for the young and the elderly, at least for some of us. This means that there will inevitably be circumstances where you fail, you're unable to care well for those you most want to care for. And this depth of moral injury, again, through no fault of your own, you're doing the best you can. There is a neoliberal system that's demanding a lot of you. You can experience a particular form of, I think, caregiver distress, which is really a distress of not being able to care for your own people, for those you love well. And that's the sense of moral injury that can arise for caregivers in the home. I'm CS. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Sarah Clark Miller joins us. She teaches philosophy, bioethics, and women's gender and sexuality studies at Penn State. She's author of The Ethics of Need, Agency, Dignity, and Obligation. And we are talking about an essay she contributed to the volume Care Ethics in the Age of Precarity, it's edited by Maurice Hammington and Michael Flower and published by the University of Minnesota Press. Right, so there is the distress that one is unable to do, to take ethically correct action, to satisfy one's own sense of what my moral commitment or duty is to another person. But you also, and this comes back to this question of personal responsibility you talked about earlier, you also point to the fact that, you know, one could have the attitude that, well, darn, you know, I can't do what I, I want to do and something else is to blame. Uh, but I think part of your concern is how people feel about themselves as a consequence of this inability to satisfy their moral commitments. So I think that's exactly right. And I think to understand this, one primary framework to put in place is to think about how parents care for their children. Now, caregiving is, is much more than just that example, but it's, it's an important one to consider here. So if you're a parent of a child, you're going to understand yourself to be acting in accordance with, with promoting the best for that child, as is possible. If we analyze this morally, this would mean that you would be acting in accordance with a moral principle of care. Now, I'm not saying that each and every parent understands themselves to be doing that in exactly that language, but in a, in a kind of common sense way they do, they understand themselves to be caring parents. So if you have this inability because of structural forces in place to actually deliver care in a sense that is strong and abiding for your children, you come to kind of violate something that's very important, a very important element of your moral identity. You think of yourself as a caring parent. It might, in fact, be the bedrock of how you, you know, move through your parenting years. It's not just that you're exhausted and can't care well. It's not just that you're burnt out. Those things may very much be true. What you risk instead of in that context is, and this is, again, a form of moral injury under neoliberalism, you can't uphold your own sense of morality. And this is important because that constitutes really the core beliefs that will make you who you are. That's what can be violated in very difficult caregiving contexts under neoliberalism. So this can amount to the losing 
of the very sense of your identity as a caring individual, as a caring parent. In relation to combat veterans, because you said that the concept of moral injury originated uh, in part, and maybe in large part, in studies of combat veterans, um, you write about the sense of guilt and shame that veterans experience because of what they do, are forced to do on the battlefield. So are we talking about emotions like guilt and shame and betrayal that can be part of uh, what either professional healthcare providers or caregivers in a domestic setting experience? So I think so. And I want to be really careful about this comparison. So what I'm not saying is that the experiences of, of those in combat are the same as the experiences of caregivers, right? When, when both experience um, forms of moral distress, there are really important differences there. But the literature that concerns combat veterans is very instructive for the reasons you're pointing to. Namely, when moral injury occurs and there's a kind of moral transgression that takes place in a combat scenario, what can be produced are very strong forms of guilt and shame, as you're saying. And it's a sense, it's a, it's a really fascinating, although terrible sense, of two forms of betrayal simultaneously. Betraying another in not being able to respond well enough in a combat context, at the same time that you are betraying yourself, right? Because you're unable to act in ways that uphold your moral principles and your understanding of who you are as a moral person. So that formulation on, on the battlefield, although in a very, you know, caregiving is a very different context, I do think there are some parallels. And there can be this kind of moral disorientation that takes place within caregiving as well, when you are unable repeatedly to care for those you love in the way that you might want to. Moral injury then can result in a sense of, of losing your moral moorings, right, or your bearings. And in that sense, you can feel morally disoriented. In different ways, I think this can happen both to combat veterans, as the literature suggests, but also to those who are thwarted in caregiving efforts. You write that enacting responsibilities related to vulnerability and dependency in daily life is what it means to be a caring person. And I believe you brought up vulnerability and dependency in, in relation to care ethics uh, when you were talking about care ethics earlier. Uh, talk about the importance of vulnerability and dependency to moral life. So for care ethics, and this is one of the ways in which it distinguishes itself from other forms of, of ethical approaches. Vulnerability and dependency, along with need, will form the core of a moral orientation. So this means that the focus will not be so much on individual well-being within oneself, but rather an awareness both of what we might call ontological vulnerability meaning the ways in which all of us are vulnerable. So for example, if I walk outside and um, there's a tornado, I can be vulnerable to injury. That can happen to any human being. But within care ethics and related political philosophies, there's a very important awareness that vulnerability to harm, beyond being something that we ontologically all experience, is also distributed socially quite differently. So. I may be able to protect myself if I have the proper means in my basement that has been tornado uh, prepared in a way that a homeless person cannot. And so there are greater forms of predictable vulnerability for those who are socially oppressed in various ways. Turning back to caregivers, in the face of competing demands and the pressure they're under, the pressure you've talked about, caregivers have to face hard choices, right? They do. So one thing about humans is that we can experience a seemingly infinite amount of need. And especially adult caregivers within familial contexts will inevitably encounter situations where they are unable to meet the needs of all of those who are relying upon them. So if we think about the early days of, of COVID-19, an adult caregiver would have been attempting at the same time to care well for 
any child in the house, right? There are children who were doing remote schooling, which was incredibly difficult for a number of children. If at the same time that adult caregivers, parents become sick with COVID, as happened to a number of people I know, there would inevitably be a tension where those caregivers would be pulled between helping their child who would be experiencing difficulties in school in a remote setting and their elderly parents who would be experiencing the sometimes severe symptoms of COVID. If you add to that ways in which professionals, right? So these dependency laborers within the home often have professional identities as well that are attached. Within a professional context, they will also be called upon to engage in additional care. There is a limited resource of care that's available in the face of an infinite form of need. And inevitably what happens is a caregiver has to decide crushingly how to kind of distribute the harm that results. Do they spend uh, less time caring for their child such that they can be present to their elderly parents? If you throw a friendship network in the mix as well, um, do they focus on their friend who is in crisis with COVID-19 to the detriment of focusing on their elderly parents and their and their children? Inevitably, they will fall short. And I think that the pandemic has given us um, a new lens through which to understand or to really magnify how that can take place. And nobody wants to be in a position of needing to decide how to apportion harm to those they love when they're unable to meet all of the needs that are present uh, in any given kind of slice of life. And so you're right that there is no way to emerge with our moral integrity fully intact, feeling that one cares well for those one loves. Sarah Clark Miller joins us on Against the Grain. She's Associate Professor of Philosophy, Bioethics, and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies, and Director of Graduate Studies at the Pennsylvania State University. We're talking about an essay she wrote called Neoliberalism, Moral Precarity, and the Crisis of Care. You can find it in the volume Care Ethics in the Age of Precarity. My name is C.S. Song. Well, we've been talking mostly about caregivers, and part of your essay is also devoted to the harm that is inflicted on relationships. And interestingly, you bring up two kinds of relationships, intrapersonal and interpersonal. So interpersonal relationships, well, I can kind of understand that. What's an intrapersonal relationship, and how might that be harmed under neoliberalism? So an intrapersonal relationship is the way in which we relate to ourselves. So obviously there are are going to be relationships that hold between people. One other way of thinking about relationality is to understand that we relate to ourselves. So a common example within uh, philosophy and also in the world would be the notion of self-respect, right? So if you engage in an action that you think is, is beneath yourself in the world, you will come to regard yourself with less respect. And that's an intrapersonal relationship. The reason that relationships and relationality are an important newer form of analysis regarding the harms of neoliberalism is because much of neoliberalism and critiques of neoliberalism have focused on harms that befall individuals, right? Or harms that befall systems. But in between the individual level and any kind of system level, there will be a relational level. And so neoliberalism, we can recognize, will inflict relational harms as well as individual harms. This means that it impacts the relational capacities that people have and that it can, in fact, negatively impact relationships themselves. And this is where the interpersonal relationship can be harmed, your relationship with yourself, as well as forms of relationship with others. Interpersonal relationships can be harmed, resulting in the fraying of relationships. And I think you relate this to uh, not just the caregiver's experience of not being able to care well for others, but also the care recipient's experience of being on that end of the interaction, where the the caregiver is is not doing what the caregiver 
hopes or wants to do. That's right. So this means that there's a sense of precarity with regard to neoliberalism that applies not only to individuals and systems, but also to relationships that we're in. And if you look at, at any kind of interpersonal relationship, you need to look at both you know, entities or elements involved in that relationship. So under conditions of, of late stage capitalism or neoliberalism, there's a sense in which when we're unable to provide care well, that can injure ourselves. It injures how we regard ourselves. But obviously, there's someone on the other end of that relationship. And if you're in a context where someone who's supposed to be caring for you is unable to do so, and let's say, you know, through no fault of their own, it's not something that they intend. But if your needs are not met well consistently as a child, for example, or if your needs are put second to other forms of, of priority, if your needs are not met in ways that are, are loving because your parent is so stressed out by the multiple demands upon them, this is gonna impact you. What results, if there's negligence over time, is that the relational bond that holds between a parent and a child can be stressed. And if that continues over long enough a period of time, that relational bond can begin to crumble. Sometimes, I mean, hopefully not, but sometimes beyond repair. So what neoliberalism can do then is it can disrupt these interpersonal caregiving relationships as well. And the relationship itself can be a form of, let's say, collateral damage um, in the overall context of late stage capitalism. And with respect to the, the caregiver, I think, there can also be, as you write, a violation of duty of self-perception. What is that? So what can happen is caregivers obviously focus on their caregiving duties and, and the ways in which caregiving is important to their lives and how they understand themselves. But they're not usually only caregivers. So they also have other professional identities. And in that sense, they can come to regard themselves uh, in a way that is lesser with regard to their professional standing. So think about it this way. I very much want to be a good mother. That is a core part of my identity. Another core part of my identity is being a good professor. And that means showing up in ways that are important for my students. And it means conducting and writing research that is helpful to the world. If under neoliberalism, when I'm not caring well, the crisis of care, in fact, is one not only for the home, it's also a crisis of care in the workplace where I'm unable to continue on with my self-conception as someone who is a good caregiver in the home and a good professor in the workplace. And what I emphasized towards the end of this article is that both of those identities are quite important the sacrificing of a kind of moral self-conception can happen not only in the home, but in terms of, of other aspects of identity that people might hold in the workplace. You argue in this piece in the book, Care Ethics in the Age of Precarity, that there are consequences of all of this, all of what you've been talking about, for social reproduction. What is social reproduction, and how is it affected by the moral precarity and the relational precarity that you've been talking about. So to understand what social reproduction is, I'm going to return to a place we were earlier, namely the, the very important work of Nancy Fraser. So when Fraser discusses social reproduction, she lets us know that really at the core of social reproduction is the task of creating social bonds and maintaining those social bonds over time. So we can think about how this is represented in connections between generations, for example. One way to understand this would be reproductive, right? The, the creation and, and birthing of children, the caring for the elderly. It's also about not just vertical ties between generations, but social reproduction is also about horizontal ties that exist in our networks of care. So ways in which we interact with our family, our friends, 
um, colleagues in the workplace, neighbors uh, in our neighborhood, how we basically build and sustain community. Now, social reproduction, historically speaking, has often been women's work, right? There's been a, a, a focus on reproductive labor and reproductive labor has built and maintained vertical ties of social reproduction from one generation to the next. On a horizontal level, we can think about emotional labor, how women have often been asked to create and maintain horizontal lines of social reproduction in how through effectively attending to others, they will sustain networks that are really crucial for survival and are equally crucial for what it means for a community to thrive. So that in a broad sense is what social reproduction is. Sarah Clark Miller is her name. She's an ethicist based at the Pennsylvania State University, author of The Ethics of Need, Agency, Dignity, and Obligation. Could you read the, the last paragraph of, of your essay in Care Ethics in the Age of Precarity? Sure, I'd be happy to. It is not just the case that reduced social reproduction labor results in fewer babies and in people who are less emotionally satisfied. Rather, the myriad ways neoliberalism exacerbates our moral precarity accumulate through the crisis of care until ultimately the very fabric of our interdependence is at stake. This wider sustaining tapestry of interdependence begins to unravel. Our webs of relationality which have always been much more fragile than perhaps we cared to realize, start to tear. As fabric and web give way, institutions undergirded by cooperative sociality, the economy, political institutions, and ultimately aspects of culture are jeopardized, threatening the social contract itself. And this is ultimately why the moral injuries of neoliberalism deserve our careful attention and why the moral precarity of the crisis of care is so deeply consequential. Sarah, your book, The Ethics of Need, Agency, Dignity, and Obligation, was published by Routledge. What is The Ethics of Need about? So The Ethics of Need is basically an argument for the philosophical importance of the notion of need, and also for an ethical framework through which we can determine which needs have moral significance. At the core of that work, I argue for something I call the duty to care. And I do this by synthesizing insights from Immanuel Kant's moral philosophy and feminist care ethics. And I say that our mutual and forms of inevitable interdependence will give rise to this duty to care for the needs of others. I also there consider carefully the ways in which we meet others' needs. And so uh, argue for a form of what I call dignifying care. And this concept is one that captures how human interactions of care can either grant or deny equal moral standing and inclusion to others within a moral community. Can you tell us a little bit more about dignifying care and any conclusions you have in relation to that concept? And also uh, talk about the two cases you examine in which urgent needs require a caring and dignifying response, namely the, the needs of the elderly and the needs of global strangers? Sure. So the concept of dignifying care is really a, a recognition that not all forms of care are created equal. So the ways in which we meet others' needs, what I call the manner of meeting needs, matters ethically just as much as the end goal of having those needs met. So you can think about, to, to go to the first case, the needs of the elderly, um, and think about communal care concepts where the elderly are cared for within institutional structures. It really matters whether dinner is delivered and especially served in, in forms of, you know, spoon feeding someone who is unable to do that for themselves to an elderly individual in ways that are respectful of who that person is. That type of care, when care is delivered well, it dignifies the person involved. It, it helps to 
hold them within a moral community in a way that signals to the rest of the community that they're deserving of equal moral standing and that they're deserving of respect. On the flip side of that case, it would be a situation in which an elderly person is not cared for well and their dinner is fed to them in a way that demeans them or that does not properly acknowledge uh, their moral personhood and their dignity. That type of action signals to a moral community that that person has lesser moral standing and is not deserving of equal moral regard. So care, this kind of caretaking dependency labor, can be delivered in a whole host of different ways. And the manner that we meet other people's needs matters morally just as much as the meeting of the needs themselves. Yeah, interesting. So because some people might think, well, needs, you know, we all have needs for, let's say, attention and and care. And, and that's not a moral issue. That's just a practical issue. We need someone to feed us if we can't feed ourselves. And so it's a matter of life and death. But what you are saying is, I think, that needs, or at least some needs, have a moral significance? Yes. So I, I in fact, think that many needs have a moral significance. And the reason they're morally significant is because if they're not met, we are unable to be full agents in the world. We can't self-determine our action. We can't go about building lives that are of meaning to us. That matters morally. So in the case of hunger, for example, if you are frequently experiencing hunger, you will have limited energy, you'll be depleted of, of intellectual focus. You won't be able to act in the world that allows you to create a life of meaning for you and that allows you to really go after what's important to you and build the life that you want. That's a moral issue. And of course, you know, hunger is a matter of suffering, but it's also a matter of compromised agency. And it's really the lack of ability to self-determine and to be an agent that I think is the moral core of why needs are morally significant. You can find a link on againsttothegrain.org to Sarah Clark Miller's book, The Ethics of Need, Agency, Dignity, and Obligation. What are you currently working on, Sarah? So I'm currently working on two books. Uh, the first is a book that focuses on sexual violence and sexual agency. And it's really a combination of a diagnostic work and a responsive work. So in that book, I offer a theory of sexual violence and sexual agency that's critical and pluralist. And I explore the epistemic aspects of sexual violence and responses to sexual violence found, for example, in the idea of survivors' uh, epistemic refusal of how dominant epistemic paradigms might understand the nature of their violation. I also conduct in that text a relational analysis of sexual violence, which moves beyond seeing sexual violence as the perpetration of a crime by one individual perpetrator against an individual victim. And I consider how experiences of trauma affect moral responsibility. The second book I'm working on is, is more directly related to our conversation today. So I'm writing a book on relational ethics that considers the meaning of vulnerability and interdependence for moral life. And that book really begins from the recognition of the fundamental moral significance of relationality, vulnerability, and interdependence. So in the past two years, we've been deprived of the ability to relate with one another as we normally would. And the value of the connections we hold with others, the ways in which we need one another to really sustain who we are and to orient who we want to become, that's become, I think, blazingly and sometimes distressingly evident to us. So this is a way of saying our humanity's kind of messy collective vulnerability has been on full display. And the book is a response to that. Um, it is one of the first books to understand relational ethics as, as its own type of moral theory. And so in it, I aim to develop relational ethics as a distinctive moral theory, one that's characterized by the attribution of moral value, not to individuals, or collectives, but instead in light of these interactive, interdependent properties held between persons. And when you said epistemic, epistemic uh, refers to epistemology, which has to do with uh, 
the nature of knowledge, correct? That's right. So epistemology is the study of knowledge. And within the sexual violence literature, thinking through the epistemic aspects of sexual violence is, is a newer approach. Um, and really, it's an approach that, that combines kind of ethical approaches with, with approaches regarding knowledge. This is important for conversations regarding sexual violence because there are often forms of, of doubting the knowledge that victims have and challenging what they know to be true about their own violation. Do you have even tentative titles for the two books you mentioned you're working on? So the Sexual Violence and Sexual Agency book, that title is currently under construction. I will say that perhaps somewhat directly, but maybe uncreatively, the title of the Relational Ethics book is Relational Ethics, but it's important because uh, this this is a, a relatively new form of ethics. The subtitle is On the Meaning of Vulnerability and Interdependence for Moral Life. Sarah Clark Miller, Associate Professor of Philosophy, Bioethics, and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Penn State, author of The Ethics of Need, and you can also check out our essay, Neoliberalism, Moral Precarity, and the Crisis of Care that we've been talking about. It appears in the volume Care Ethics in the Age of Precarity, edited by Maurice Hammington and Michael Flower. Sarah, thanks so much for your work and for joining us today. Thank you, CS. It's been a real pleasure. And this is CS, suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, as Albert Einstein once said, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against.